Okay, so a little bit about Martin Stokes. Uh, this is not his first time visiting Austin. It's his third time visiting Austin. He is King Edward Professor of Music at King's College, London, uh, in the UK. And there he teaches all kinds of ethnomusicology and anthropology of music courses. Um, to, to date, his work is focused on questions of ethnicity, identity, globalization, and the history of ethnomusicology and folk music study. Um, he doesn't lecture um, only about uh, Middle Eastern music, but um, the part of his work that I've been most interested in is really his work on Turkey and Egypt. Um, let's see, he has a fantastic book recommended to you in PCL called The Republic of Love, Cultural Intimacy in Turkish Popular Music. And um, another great one about the Arabesque debate, um, music and musicians in modern Turkey. And if you're ready to go, I will, without any further ado. Okay, let's welcome him here. Thank you very much, and thank you um, for that kind introduction, and thank you to everyone who's been um, responsible for, for, for getting me here. It's a real pleasure, and it's a real privilege. Um, as Janet Hodja mentioned, I've been um, to um, the university here um, before, but I think it was over 10 years ago. I'm struggling to remember the details, and it was a lovely, it's been a lovely opportunity for, for me to remind myself just what a beautiful uh, campus you've got here, and of course, what a, a, a beautiful and great community of scholars you have here as well. I really am very happy and honored to be here, particularly on such a lovely day as well. Um, apologies for the kerfuffle um, over the last 10 minutes or so, but we were downstairs and we had everything set up immaculately. We set out the chairs, we got the sound organized and absolutely everything. You should have seen it. It was abs <laughs> absolute perfection down there and then wondering where the audience uh, had gone and I, I, I was beginning to wonder whether my uh, um, I might have a fairly light afternoon's work ahead of me uh, after all. But anyway, I'm delighted that we've found one another um, and that I'm here now, more or less ready to go, uh, more or less ready to go. Um, thanks um, particularly to Errol um, for, for all of his work in, in doing the organization and logistics for this trip, and he's been doing it all whilst he's been doing his master's uh, qualifying exams as well, and I know that that's been, um, it's, it's been a, a feat of organization. Thank you very much, Errol. I'd also un like to underline the um, the, the interest of the Tahir Aydodu um, concert coming up on, sorry, when did you say it was? Was it Wednesday, April the 8th? Um, I actually heard Tahir Aydodu playing in London, completely coincidentally, a couple of weeks ago. He's a remarkable kanun player. I can't recommend him strongly enough. And also this Alnar Kanun Concerto um, is, is a very unusual event. I hadn't heard it performed live, and I think that that really will be, well, I think it is a first um, in the States, so I couldn't recommend that enough. Do go. So as you um, will know a little bit from the introduction, I'm an ethnomusicologist. I work on the Middle East, and I've mostly done my field work in, uh, in Turkey, mainly in the 1980s and in the early 1990s. 
and also in Egypt, in Cairo in particular, and mainly in the early 2000s. These were, in retrospect, politically uh, complex and strange moments um, in which protest, protest at the political conditions in, in both countries, which is to say the military uh, coup d'etat and its aftermath in Turkey, and the latter Mubarak years in Egypt, now in retrospect appear in the strange and rather weird kind of bubble that they in fact were. But one of the consequences of this, that when one looks at the cultural space that protest, the subject of my talk this afternoon, was rather muted, well, very muted. Um, my interests revolved um, around um, sentimental musicians, figures of um, civility, I would describe figures of a certain kind of um, kind of decency um, around whom alternative narratives about um, publicness and citizenly belonging could be woven and looked at from that the perspectives afforded by that particular moment. It seemed to me that this was where a particular kind of, of protest was, in fact, taking place. But it was a muted protest, and it was a protest that was um, as much about citizenship and, um, and um, kind of public identifications as it was um, about um, revolution, um, rebellion, defying the old order in any particularly overt way. And the figures that I've looked at in these two areas of work have been famous Turkish vocalists um, dating from the 1950s through to the 1990s, and I focused on three who seemed to capture particular moments of this uh, process. You'll see up on the screen there, Zeki Müren in the 1950s, Orhan Gencebay in the 1970s, and Sezen Aksu in the 1990s. So my last book was a study, essentially, of these three musicians. And in Egypt, I was focusing on the work of a vocalist called Abdel Halim Hafez, a creature of the Nasserite revolution in the 1950s, who very much dominated Egyptian media space in the, in the 60s and 70s, and was the object of a whole kind of nostalgic complex in the latter Mubarak years in the early 2000s. Um, I'm an odd kind of ethnomusicologist, uh, even in the context, in the rather odd context of, of ethnomusicologists who work on the Middle East, because I've uh, crossed a rather significant divide, which continues to separate rather problematically and unfortunately people who work in the Turkish world and people who work in the Arab world. It's a difficult divide I discovered to cross. But it was rather important to me because these three musicians here, and in fact the music that, that really drew me to the study of Turkish music in the first place, was all about uh, a kind of translation of Egyptian film music pleasures into the Turkish cultural universe. And so at a certain point it struck me that I really needed to know more about the Egyptian, because Egypt was really central here, I needed to know more about the Egyptian mediascape 
of the 1950s, 1960s, and 1970s, what it was that people interested in music and Turkish composers and Turkish vocalists were, were listening to in the um, period leading up to the period that I was particularly interested in. So this was why I did a kind of um, parallel um, study of um, rather similar kinds of music in Egypt. So this is what drew me to these figures, Zeki Muren, Orhan Gencibay, Sezen Aksu in Turkey, and Abdul Halim Hafez in Egypt. Not figures that one would readily associate with uh, protest for the reasons that I've already mentioned, rather the reverse, if anything. These were figures of, to use Michael Hertzfeld's terms, um, cultural intimacy, which is to say figures of embarrassment, figures of sentiment, figures of um, ambivalence. Uh, that's to say figures who are clearly not associated with high art worlds and legitimate cultural worlds, but not quite low or, as it were, of the people either, at least in any redeeming sense of the term. So it's this ambiguity that interests me about these figures. It's the ambivalence that surrounds these figures that interests me about them, and it, that it seems to me is a peculiarly productive aspect of their, of these muted politics of civility and decency that interested me particularly in the 1980s um, in the Turkish context and in the early 2000s in the Egyptian context. They are indeed complicated figures. People like Zeki Muren, Oren Gencibay, Sezen Aksu, and others were certainly capable of playing um, the part of establishment figures as well. They were not immune to flattery by the state, by the intelligentsia, and by, their, by the media systems. Their peculiar talent indeed seems to be rather more one of blending in, or of, as it were, disappearing into plain sight. But their contribution in both Turkish and Egyptian context seems to me at least to have been one of maintaining and perhaps even more than maintaining and transmitting, but developing and enriching, I think in some very real senses, ideas of public belonging, commitment, and identification in the otherwise, on the face of it, unpromising hinterlands of Middle Eastern modernity, where public space, whether by this I mean the physical spaces of the city or the electronic spaces of the mass media, or the intellectual spaces of higher education and the universities and publishing, have routinely been conceived, at least in the West, as spaces of instruction and discipline of the masses by the elites, which is to say not as spaces of democratic participation. So this is to give you some kind of summary of, of where my interests in Middle Eastern musical culture lay until um, relatively recently. The protests in Egypt in Tahrir Square and then the Gezi Park protests in Istanbul more recently rather disturbed this view of things. They didn't exactly come as a surprise to me or indeed anybody else familiar with or at least who had lived face to face with the boiling but deeply suppressed uh, rage at play in both of these societies. And it wouldn't have come as a great su a surprise to people in tune with or at least aware of 
the sense of old habits of obedience or fear of authority being eroded, being in decline. Whether in Egypt in the latter Mubarak years or in Turkey in the uh, current uh, Erdogan years. So if it didn't come exactly as a, these, these, these explosions of street protest didn't exactly come as a surprise, they still really didn't fit into the kind of picture that I've been spinning around these kinds of figures, the Zeki Murens and the Abdul Halim Hafiz-like figures. And it didn't really fit in with what I was trying to explain here, how, as it were, certain citizenly virtues were still being developed and processed in and through the kind of the mass media that surrounds these particular figures of uh, cultural intimacy. So these appeared to me to be two rather um, incompatible things. And, I, and, and um, the problem that at least faces me is how I really reconcile these two, uh, these two rather different things. How, as it were, I see or attempt to understand the connection between the, as it were, the quiet and melodious protests of Zeki Miran, Orhan Gencebay, Sezen Aksu and Abdel Halim Hafez in Turkey and Egypt respectively. How I reconcile that with the, as it were, noisy and dissonant protests of Tahrir and Gezi. So that's the little problem that I'm um, setting myself and, and I'll respond to it with, um, with, with the, the very short paper that I'll, I'll, I'll read out in a second. But I should explain that I'm trying to do this at the level of the, the sentimental. The sentimental is the key uh, term here and a subject on which I'm going to be talking on Friday as well in the music department. Tahrir Square and Gezi Park were, in my view, nothing if not sentimental moments. In using this rather freighted and complicated word, perhaps problematic word, I don't know, we'll see, but in using this rather freighted word, I have in mind something of the radical claims of an earlier moment, the 18th century cult of sentiment in Europe, and something too of the logic of affective substitutions in the current space of political populism, whereby parts mobilize wholes, whereby fantasies about small things, as it were, make, as it were, big things happen. And this, for those of you who are interested, is a view I derive from a reading or of, or rather an attempt to understand the work of political theorist Ernesto Laclau. So, um, I did want to ask whether there's a, can I have a glass of water? I've got a bit of a sore throat at the moment. And if, if anybody could oblige just with a, a, a sorry to make you run there, um, no hurry. <clears throat> Excuse me, I've got a bit of a cold. So a, sentimental, a sentimentalization of place has been at play throughout. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. You should appreciate that. Thank you. <clears throat> so a sentimentalization of place has been at play throughout this moment of the squares and the parks 
a moment that appears to be coming, if not to an end, then at least undergoing some kind of transformation. Habits of fixating on the so-called Arab Spring have been unfortunate. The so-called Arab Spring encompassed, as we now know all too well, a huge variety of political movements and cultures of dissent. And it's also meant that we lose sight of some broader dynamics of what, was, of what it was that connected Istanbul, Tehran, and Cairo, London, Athens, and Tel Aviv, Rio, Oakland, and Manhattan, the sign of all sorts of politics of the street in one way or another. I think it's quite interesting to think not just about what it is that, how all of these are different, but the various things that they might actually have shared as well. And one of these shared dynamics has to do, in my mind, with what is happening in, in cities, and hence my rather broad category of inquiry here, the sentimentalization of place. The sentimentalization of place has been around for a long time, of course, as one, as one might point out. As Marshall Berman remarked in a piece a few years ago on the Occupy movement, the Athenian agora has been the scene of a powerful nostalgia in Western political philosophy since about the fourth century BC. The old oligarch, a fifth century BC commentator, and I quote from Marshall Berman here, was fascinated by the Athenian agora's sloppiness. Here, people dress down. Social distance is minimized. One cannot even tell masters from slaves. Athens is the only city with a law forbidding masters to beat their slaves. The old oligarch is amazed that any city can hold together without a strictly visible social hierarchy. He concludes that informally defined spaces like Athens's agora and peaceable practices like shopping and related cultural activities can make people feel comfortable with each other and nourish peaceable bonds between them so that everybody learns, thank you very much, both how to rule and how to obey. End of quote there from this piece by Marshall Berman on the, the Occupy movement. This formula of his, knowing how to rule and how to obey, came to be understood as the formula for democratic citizenship. Athens's agora came to be understood, as Berman puts it, and again I quote, as the ideal place to learn this contradictory behavior. But it already had its critics, Plato amongst them. By the time Alexander the Great conquered Athens and other Greek cities in the 330s and the 320s BC, both ideal and practice had more or less disappeared. It was revived in the Enlightenment with Rousseau's depiction of the assembled mass addressed by the sound of the human voice as the foundational scene of democracy, as, <clears throat> as with the French Revolution's assembling of the masses at the Bastille and the Champ de Mars. The revolution descended, the French Revolution descended into an orgy of violence, as we know. The construction of public squares in which the masses might be assembled, addressed, and instructed came to be an adjunct of totalitarianism in Europe and colonial power elsewhere. But a powerful ambiguity hangs over the modern agora these days, as W.J.T. Mitchell observes. Red Square in Moscow and Tiananmen Square in Beijing 
might have permitted spectacles of absolutism, but they were also staging grounds for popular protest. The image of the lone man defying the tanks in Tiananmen Square is perhaps one of the most iconic and enduring political images of the late 20th century. The political magic of these places is powerful. However dispersed and deterritorialized and social networked the processes of organizing resistance in the Arab Spring might have been, the capital city squares were places people felt compelled to go, to join in, the, to join in with the chanting, the laughter and the press of bodies and the sheer exuberance of political participation. A quote here from Mitchell, the empty space then is haunted, populated by spirits that refuse to rest collective and individual memories, a perception that leads toward an opposite reading of the empty space and its transformation into a sign of potentiality, possibility and plenitude, a democracy to come with the empty public space awaiting a new festival and renewed occupation, a new space of appearance, end quote. The analysis is astute, in my view, but Mitchell's depictions of the parks and squares as empty and by extension silent spaces awaiting occupation is one I find rather hard to square with my experience, at least, of Istanbul and Cairo. Taksim Square in Istanbul, adjoining Gezi Park, where the protests in Istanbul were a couple of years ago, and Tahrir Square in Cairo are, in truth, exceedingly busy, noisy and energetic spaces. And to a, an extent, and to an interesting extent, they are accidental public spaces too, which have assumed the public meanings they do in the protests and revolutions in rather complicated ways. So I don't know how many people um, have visited Istanbul here or visited Cairo here, but if any of you have, um, you will of course have a vivid memory of and experience of these two uh, places And it's interesting to reflect a little bit about the history of them and how formerly marginal places have come to assume rather central and, and public uh, roles in the political life of both countries. Tahrir Square in Cairo was a kind of backyard in Khedive Ismail's Hausmanesque transformation of Cairo in the 1860s and 70s. The area known today as the Ezbekia, near the palace, was the centerpiece of these transformations and the Khedive's showpiece. The growth of Zamalek and suburbs across the Nile resulted in barracks in Tahrir Square being cleared to enable access to a bridge, and the square thus assumed its geometrically strange but rather central position today. It only became known, indeed, as Tahrir Square in 1919, so it's a kind of it was a sort of historically accidental space. Taksim Square in Istanbul, likewise, was dominated by a military barracks for much of the 19th century, whose reconstruction, after it was destroyed in the constitutional crisis of 1909, was the focus of the Gezi Park protests um, in 2012, which I'm going to talk about shortly. The Ottoman sultans concentrated their westernizing city planning fantasies in the Muslim, not the Christian part of the city, far away on the other side of the Golden Horn. It was only in the modern republic in the 1930s and as part of Henri Prost's reconstruction plan that it was brought into a city-wide, but never in the event completed, project to ring the entire city with parks 
and public amenities. One kind of spur of which um, you, uh, you see on the screen there, uh, which was to become Gezi Park. My point here is that both Tahrir Square in Cairo and Taksim Square in Istanbul became central and public arenas slowly as a consequence of decisions and plans primarily about other things. They are places where buses stop, where people meet, where lives mingle, and where paths cross. They are sites also of commerce, of romance, and cosmopolitanism. They are certainly important to the picture of how these Middle Eastern nation states have wanted to present themselves to the world and to their citizens, but also, my point being, that they're part of many other stories, personal, individual, and intimate. So I hope the point that I'm trying to make here is, 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 is clear. These are not in any um, simple sense architectural spaces of discipline and instruction. They are in some important historical sense uh, accidental spaces um, and I think in some important historical space as well they are um, spaces of a certain kind of intimacy um, as well and I think that this is crucial to understanding what went on in both locales. So it's this sense of the personal, the intimate, the affective on the small scale that I want to capture in my uh, portrayal of the Gezi Park protests, at which I was, I should say, accidentally present. I just happened to be there, um, having no idea that this was all about to kick off in the rather violent way uh, that, it, that it did. Um, I just happened to be on the spot. Um, it says something, in my view, this attempt to, to, to think through the intimacy of these spaces about the role played by music and musicians in these protests, and also about the more general sentimentalizing of urban space that interests me more generally. Now, let me quickly remind you of what happened. Um, maybe some of you here were actually, actually present, um, as I was, at the Gezi Park um, protests, and you won't need reminding, but I'm guessing that some people will need to um, have the story told to them. Um, so plans to turn Gezi Park into a shopping mall became known um, earlier in that year. And for many urbanites in Istanbul, this was a provocative move on many different levels. Gezi Park, as you'll see on the screen here, is a small sea of green in a heavily built up area in the heart of Istanbul's formerly European commercial district. It's felt by many to be a secular space as distant from the mosques and minarets as you can be in this city, close to one of the Muslim world's first ever pieces of public statuary, close to the Ataturk Cultural Center, close to the Greek Orthodox Cathedral, and close to Turkey's first ever McDonald's, which I went to in a spirit of ethnographic adventure and ate, I think, maybe the fifth or sixth McDonald's that was ever actually produced in Turkey in 1986, right at the beginning of 1986. It's a place where protesters can assemble and disperse for the more or less ongoing demonstrations in Taksim Square, which it adjoins. And this was often forgotten in coverage of the Gezi Park protests, which is to say that, as, as some of you here will know, that it's, it's more or less round the clock um, a, a space of protest and uh, demonstration, and has been for many years. 
But it's also a place to catch your breath, to meet friends, to have picnics, have a glass of tea, to catch up on your phone messages, and so forth. So the publication of plans to build a neo-Ottoman shopping center, closely modeled on the old barracks and containing a mosque, was a highly, one might even say, calculatedly provocative act in the context of Turkey's ongoing culture wars, pitting an increasingly authoritarian and religious Tayyip Erdogan and his AK party against liberals and leftist critics countrywide. It also took place at around the time of debates about the AKP administration's efforts to curb alcohol consumption and public kissing. A sit-in initiated by the, first, uh, by the first efforts of developers to uproot trees began late in May. It was violently dispersed by the riot police on the 15th of June, generating further outrage. This sparked mirror protests across the country and in the Turkish and Kurdish diaspora in Europe, including one in um, Trafalgar Square, just 10 minutes um, away from my, walk away from my office. And as is well known, it generated weeks of street fighting and protests in and around the Taksim area. The protest movement had no central leadership, sustaining and organizing itself largely through social media. This made the circulation of key images, for example, the famous woman in the red dress, and of course music, an integral part of the protests. So I'd like to just give you a, a break from the sound of my voice and just show you some of these iconic images associated with the protests, which I've chosen to accompany with a little soundtrack here, which is a song by China Woman, AKA softcore chanteuse, Toronto-born Berlin resident, uh, Michelle Gurevich, <clears throat> which was just one of many international tributes to the Gezi protest movement with a song called Kiss in Taksim Square.
So some of the iconic images and part of the very complex, very transnational uh, soundscape of this particular uh, moment. Um, what I want to do, we started a little bit later. If I, if I, is it okay if I keep going for another 15 minutes? Um, if that's okay, I, I know people are, have other classes and things to, 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 to go to. But what I want to do, um, just as I... Um, um, just present some more um, stuff and then and wrap this up is 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 to focus on on three musical elements of the of the the Gezi protests. Um, now the first of these involved the fashioning of chants, slogans, and songs in ways that involved a very high level of wit, of arcane intertextuality, and subcultural reference. Go back for a second. Perhaps the most celebrated was provoked by Tayyip Erdogan's early reference to the protesters as looters, using the Turkish word chapulju. Overnight, those in sympathy with the protest added chapulju to their Facebook names or used it as a term of uh, address, e.g. chapulju Osman Jan or chapulju Sonia Seaman or chapulju Martin Stokes or what have you. I, I know you were, yeah. Um, so the words every day I'm chapuling in English, were to be seen scrawled over walls around the Taksim area. A YouTube video grafting images of the protest onto the music of LMFAO's 2011 hit party rock anthem, Every Day I'm Shuffling, went viral. LMFAO's hit, you'll recall, alluded to and incorporated some of the lyrics of rapper Rick Ross's song, Every Day I'm Hustling, but turning its grim tone of ghetto defiance into a joyous celebration of dancing on the streets. So the slogan, every day I'm chapeling, underlined not only the secular subcultural cosmopolitanism of the moment, a kind of cosmopolitanism that the AK party stands against, but underlined through its evocation of the LMFAO original, the spirit of play and of translation, play with language, play with sound, play with popular cultural knowledge at the heart of the protest. So layer upon layer of witty intertextuality here. Let me give you a, a blast of that. Biz Taksim Meydanı'nın yayalaştırma projesini yapıyoruz, yapacağız. Ki orada da yine biz o tarihi kışlayı yapacağız. Biz birkaç tane çapulcunun o meydana gelip insanımızı, halkımızı yanlış bilgilendirmek suretiyle so this is where he's saying, I'm not going to deal with a bunch of a bunch of looters. We've got important work to be getting at. This is where he actually first used the phrase Erdogan.
Um, I've forgotten about the penguins, and you were probably wondering about the penguins. So rather than actually report live on the, the protests, um, the Turkish um, uh, state broadcaster um, chose instead to show a wildlife program about the Antarctic. Um, and so the, these penguins became famous in the course of the riots and have become an enduring part of Istanbul folklore ever since. They became honorary participants in the, in the, um, in, in the movement. Um, yes, I'd forgotten about the penguins. So, that, that, so, so the first one was just these, this, this playful, dense, highly cosmopolitan um, uh, intertextuality, which took the form of this kind of, I suppose you would describe it as a kind of YouTube um, graffiti art, just Google every day I'm chapeling and you will see millions of things there. And for any, any of you who are interested in Turkish popular culture, this is very rich hunting grounds indeed. So the second thing was the beating of pots and pans on apartment balconies across the city. Now, I'm not sure how long this has been a protest technique in Turkey. Um, there was a lot of writing about this, and some people were convinced that it dates back to Ottoman times, but I don't think there's any evidence for that. It's clearly related to the European practice of karivari, or uh, what, uh, what we call in England rough musicking. I suspect it was probably picked up in Turkey from news coverage of the anti-austerity protests in Argentina early in the 2000s. That's my own um, theory here. But others say that beating pots and pans was um, a big part of the Susuluk um, protests a couple of years earlier. I wasn't actually in Istanbul at the time, so I don't know. Anyway, there are various different theories. Whatever side of this argument one comes down um, to, the beating of pots and pans on balconies was a very, very big part of the Gezi protest. And it was a also a response to Erdogan's dismissal in conversation with a journalist of the Gezi protests using the Turkish expression, tenjere tava, hep aine hava, the same old story, pots and pans. An unfortunate choice of words that once again put a very powerful weapon right in the hands of his opponents. Housewives in working class neighborhoods might not have been able to travel downtown to join in, but they could now make their views known publicly without stirring from their own homes. A prominent protest group, Kardesh Tutkuler, filmed themselves singing a newly composed protest song in the neighborhood's streets, 
self-accompanying with an intricate array of pots, pans, tea glasses, plates, spoons, forks, ashtrays, graters, etc., etc. It concludes with a traditional-sounding classical gazelle or a vocal improvisation, some words modified, addressing the city. O beloved Istanbul, lying ill-starred, her beauty ruined, what woe, what gas, what grief is this? Everything is raised to the ground. Whatever happened to you? Tell me, tell me, I don't want you this way. That too went viral. The pots and pans underlined the idea of the protest as intimate, homely, an improvisation using materials at hand. It also created a new sense of space of resonance, extending the protest into some of the more gender segregated traditional parts of the city, sparking dissent and engaging the opposition in new, pla in new places. There was a ferocious campaign, as I recall from the moment itself, against the pots and pans. The pro-government press managed to mobilize outrage in some quarter at the noisy balcony protests, reminding readers and viewers that this was exam season, yes, that kids had a right to educational success and not be prevented by what they were describing at this point as politics. So here is the Kardesh Tudkilev.
Penguins were indeed honorary citizens of the Republic of uh, Gezi Park. And thirdly, and, and finally, as far as this talk is concerned, and there's much more to say, music was an important component of the miniaturized re replication of the public sphere by protesters in Gezi Park itself, um, which contained medical facilities, schools, advice bureaus, a library, and of course, a symphony orchestra, the Gezi Philharmonic. Uh, no protest uh, movement is, seems complete these days without it, so its very own symphony orchestra. Um, its performances, at least to judge by the YouTube clips, had a rough and ready feel. Circumstances were far from ideal, despite the presence of some of Istanbul's most noted music schools in the immediate vicinity, and thus a great many of their students. I, of course, I knew many. But the rough and ready musical situation was transformed on the 12th of June by the unexpected arrival of German musician David Martello with his own grand piano. He performed throughout the day, playing in the evening portion of this long recital, some Beatles songs, some Bach, and some of his own compositions. After days of fighting between police and protesters, both sides, by all accounts, sat down peacefully to listen. And while this moment of peace was not to last, an enduring piece of Istanbul folklore had been forged, a protest movement capable of organizing a piano recital by an international artist, including the delivery of a grand piano. This was a powerful image for the protesters, of course. If the state could no longer fund, would no longer fund progressive and Western music, the dilapidated state of the Ataturk Cultural Center near the park, an eloquent symbol of official disdain and neglect for the West and progressivism in the arts, the protesters could make it happen. If the state would no longer foster a creative and democratic public sphere, preferring a citizenry entirely absorbed by shopping and religion, then the protesters would. Here's a brief clip of the David Martello moment. Thank you. Took a while to figure out. I'll cut it short there because uh, just to leave a, a few moments for questions. Um, but this man was, nobody had ever heard of him before. He was embarking on a self-funded uh, tour, traveling with uh, two other musicians and basically with his grand piano in the back of his, uh, back of his truck. I rocked up in Istanbul at this moment. Um, no connection with, with the protest movement itself until this moment. Um, turned up, 
um, gave this performance and has become um, a more or less mythic uh, figure in the folklore that surrounds this in entire uh, movement, never to be heard of much before and probably not much again outside of Turkey. In Turkey, this man is a very, very famous man indeed. At the heart of Erdogan's criticism of the Gezi Park protesters was the assertion that this issue was not just about Gezi Park. I'm just concluding here. It was about Istanbul as a whole, and it was about Turkey as a whole. People standing in the way of the Gezi Park plan, in his view, were standing in the way of the development of the city and the country as a whole. The criticism was effectively one of selfishness, of let me just put it this way, of sentimentalism, of failing to understand the big picture, or rather of substituting a small picture for a big picture. In this view of things, Gezi Park has no particular privilege, no particular magic. It had been quite a different place early in the 19th century, dominated as it was then by the barracks until they burnt down. It had been something else for most of the 20th century, and in the 21st century, his view would, was that it would be something else again. Things move on the world gets richer. People will have less need for public space downtown when they can drive around their city more swiftly and comfortably, have more stuff in their homes to entertain themselves, have more in their refrigerators to feed themselves with, can fly away for vacations when city life gets too stressful, and can conduct most, if not the entirety, of their social lives on their mobile, ele mobile electronic devices. The cathected Spaces of neoliberal desire are domestic and electronic in this universe, of, or those of transport to, to transport, transport to anywhere but here, the car, the airport. Downtown, uh, meanwhile, becomes a mix of museums, corporate headquarters, and a display case for the state's ongoing architectural vanity projects, all to be enjoyed in consumer mode, transiently and at a distance. Protesters in Gezi, and one might say elsewhere, in the squares and parks over the last 10 years have recoiled not only from the aridity of this vision of human well-being, but also from the violence to others and to the environment that it entails. There have to be other ways of thinking about urban space, other ways of experiencing, other ways of inhabiting it. Nostalgia will not do, for the world quite clearly has moved on. Real estate speculation is pushing people around in unaccountable and undemocratic ways. The state's priorities are clearly almost everywhere, those of facilitating investment and protecting property. No wonder the question of how to re-enchant urban place is so much on people's minds. And no wonder they are so anxiously attached to the broader question of the decline of the public sphere. For what's going on in the parks, the squares, and the downtown neighborhoods of cities across the world declares not only new fault lines between states and citizens, but also a struggle over the very concept of a public and its relation to the downtown agora with which I began. It is, to be, is it to be, in the final analysis, simply another way of talking about the market, where people can come together to buy and sell, to pursue their desires in a peaceful fashion as individuals free from government power? Or is it to be a, a redistrib redistributive mechanism, ensuring a sense of participation and inclusion? Or is it to be a space of appearance in Hannah Arendt's terms, a space that not only enables but provokes the imagination of new ways of living socially, ethically, and politically, a space in which decisive transformations might actually happen. The protests in the squares and parks of the last couple of years in the Middle East and elsewhere have been about many different things, of course, but they have all surely indicated a more or less global preoccupation with what this word public might now mean, and a highly emotional struggle over its signs and symbols. 
The parks and squares, to conclude here, have put a new premium on music in the quest for social justice. The figure of the musician has underlined the capacity of people to create, to improvise, to party. Music has forged solidarity, reminding people of what can be achieved when they gather complexity, beauty, innovation, fun and playfulness without others necessarily telling them what to do. Music in these situations has activated deep resources of collective cultural knowledge and thus produced subtle, witty, moving and persuasive chanting, graffiti and posters. It's reminded the people of what they own when so much is being taken away and it's reminded the people of what they can do other than shop. Now, I wanted to do a couple of things in this lecture. I wanted to suggest that place remains a complex and troubled site of collective emotion-making. To grasp music in these troubled, place-oriented, place-dependent situations is to put us in a position where we might explore music emotion critically and without constant methodological recourse to the reacting individual, a model I've been at pains to distance myself in the more broader project I'm working on, on music and citizenship and public emotions. And... Um, uh, with that, with that, with that sentence, I'll bring my um, thoughts to an end, and uh, hope that it's provided you with um, some um, thoughts. And for those of you uh, who are familiar with the the Gezi Park movement, but, but perhaps haven't reflected much about the musical um, components, um, maybe this will uh, um, generate some thoughts and, and discussions. But at any rate, um, thank you very much for having um, sat through my talk. <laughs>